I think one thing is clear to me, and that is that the world will not be the same after this. But, you know, in the longer term, I have very little doubt the economy will prevail, that the inventive spirit of the entrepreneur will prevail, and that we will go on, albeit in a world which is slightly different to this one, and one which is not completely easy to envisage at this stage, but in point of fact, something will emerge. As we try to make sense of COVID-19's impact on public health and the economy, the question of jobs is paramount. This is particularly true in South Africa, where we entered the crisis with employment rates already testing historic lows. Investec Focus Radio caught up with one of South Africa's foremost labor experts to discuss the immediate impact of the lockdown. We also asked whether this unprecedented crisis could be a longer-term game-changer for labor dynamics in South Africa and beyond. I'm Andrew Levy, and I'm the senior partner at Andrew Levy Employment, and we are a consultancy which specializes in labor relations, labor law, and labor market analysis. So we are simple labor people. That's what we do. Andrew, I was looking at all of these questions, and there's some weighty stuff here, but I was also spending a bit of time on social media and on some of the chat threads on some news sites last night and wondering really what is the the big issue that's on people's minds in relation to COVID-19 and the labor market. And where I got to thinking was something like this, you know, we've had an economic history in this country that's been characterized by a lot of tension between business and labor. And sometimes it's exploded into out and out conflict and, you know, the most horrendous violence. But we've also seen times when in extraordinary circumstances, business and labor have come together. And uh, I'm thinking like the Codessa process in the 90s and even in some of the darkest moments in the Zuma years when state corruption was a common enemy. So the question is, does this extraordinary crisis become another source of tension and conflict or does it become a common enemy that unites business and labor and compels them to pull together in the long-term interests of workers and the economy? I'm afraid I can't see the cooperation as the immediate outcome of this, and this takes us to the whole issue of how the economy will restart. And, you know, in a manner of speaking, the state president switched off the economy with a flick of a switch, but in fact, it can't start again the same way. It's going to be a long, slow, staggered process. We're going to have a situation where labor demand will certainly be down. Companies will have failed. They will be laying off workers. They will be restarting on a phased basis according to their demand. They will find that a lot of the jobs that they thought were essential are not essential. So one of the inevitable results of this is going to be a continued and accelerated loss of jobs on top of the decade-long trend of job loss. Now, when it comes to retrenchment or anything of that nature, the unions have not shown any ability to cooperate with management or capital, as they would call it, at all. And their attitude has always been, we will fight it and we will stop it and there will be blood in the streets, as opposed to perhaps a more measured view which says, We don't like it, but we realize that we cannot stop it. And therefore, let us do the best we can for our members and try this on a collaborative basis. I don't see that. And I think if you add to that the more pressing problems that we will face, which we already know of, such as 
the public sector wage bill, I see very little chance that the union movement per se will find common ground with managements either at Nedlake level or at bargaining council level for industries or at company level. So I think it's going to be troubled waters ahead, certainly for the balance of the year, which is going to largely be taken up with the startup process. A lot of the comments around this that I've seen have been, surely at some point there needs to be a recognition by unions, and you've mentioned that when the economy kind of flicks back on, labor demand's going to be down, there may well be some jobs that people realize are no longer required. Is the writing not clearly on the wall now for unions to say, look, unless there is an understanding that we need to be open to some kind of reform, for example, some compromise on the public sector wage bill, that actually when we come out the other end of this, they're going to have a whole lot fewer members than they have now. With regard to the question of unions seeing the writing on the wall, the answer is no, even though their backs are to it. And this is because we are still plagued by this huge ideological divide. I mean, Kasatu and Namsa, the breakaway, are still firmly embedded in a Marxist-Leninist paradigm. They see capital as the enemy. They are awaiting the arrival of the socialist state. And as long as they have that mindset, it's going to be very, very difficult to find common ground. Now, whether or not those views are shared by their members is an open question. And certainly government has tried to address this in their code of good practice on collective bargaining and strikes. They appear to be very aware of the fact that frequently the agenda or the strike is set by the union or the shop stewards rather than driven by the desires of the members. But having said that, um, I think the acid test is going to be the public sector wage bill and, of course, the well-known fact that Eskom is severely overmanned. And that very much is going to be the issue on which we stand or fall. The current debate in and around will there be an implementation of the existing wage deal in the public sector is an interesting one. And government is equivocating about this. I would have thought that from a strategic point of view, the best thing they could have done was to announce their intention to retrench under Section 189 and then to say one of the ways we can avoid this is by reducing and by agreeing to reduce the wage increases scheduled for year three of the deal. And that would have been a very simple way to get around the fact that there is a binding agreement in place. Now, they didn't do that, so it's hard to see. But we still hear continuous sounds of we are going to tackle it. And, you know, I think one's either got to be an optimist or a pessimist in this. Do you think they have what it takes politically? I think, and bear in mind, I'm certainly not a political analyst, that the state president will emerge out of this strengthened, more confident. And I, for one, believe that he will tackle those issues. So I think that we're going to see serious levels of retrenchment in the public sector, certainly within Eskom. And I think one also needs to dispel the myth, which is perpetuated by public sector workers, that they are the 
poorest of the poor and they're very badly paid. That is not true at all. In fact, they are not only the best paid, but their employment is the most secure. They hardly ever get dismissed and their benefits by way of leave, additional leave, etc., etc., far outweigh those in the private sector. So with this scenario in mind, if it is to take place, it again becomes virtually impossible ideologically for the unions to say, let's cooperate with this process. Although the logical voice says, you know, if it's inevitable, then surely you would do better by sitting down with management and talking about training, retraining, saving jobs, doing the best you can, rather than saying over our dead bodies. So the public sector wage bill being very top of mind at the moment, but then obviously the private sector having to deal with some questions about how do I stay in business? How do I remain viable? How do I keep my workers employed? And we've seen a whole lot of moves there to keep businesses that are fundamentally sound from going bust during this lockdown period. But obviously, there's only so long that that can continue. What are the sectors that worry you most from a labor perspective? Where are we most likely to see deleterious long-term impact? I think the immediate and the most likely sector where we will see business failures and job losses are retail. That's certainly because during lockdown, they have no clientele, they have no customers at all. The issue of their overheads remains. But equally, when this is over, there will be a lot of illiquidity in the economy. Demand will be down. Workers will not have money to spend on luxury items. And so I think generally the retailers will find themselves in a very difficult situation. We already know that some of the biggest chains, which are household names, are on the very edge of survival. And it may well be that this will be the last straw for many of them. Of course, what we won't see as much is the smaller business, the mom and the pop shop, who may well, A, not have the capital, B, not perhaps have the ability to get bank finance, overdraft finance to keep themselves going, and who might finally even say, it's just not worth it. So I think that's where we're going to see the initial catastrophe. The major industries which are probably going to be safest, although there will clearly be a lagged start, is mining, and much will depend on levels of demand throughout the world. But mining will continue, although once again, it won't go back to full employment on day one. I think the entire food sector from production to distribution to point of sale will be reasonably well insulated because people still have to eat. And I think that if you look at some of the other areas of manufacturing, they're also going to find themselves in difficulty. So what immediately comes to mind is the auto industry. Buying new cars is certainly a luxury expenditure, and that's highly price elastic or wage elastic. There are, of course, a whole industry making componentry for the motor industry from brake pads to trim. They will feel the pinch. If we look at metal engineering generally, which has seen a loss of over 250,000 jobs over the last eight years or so, largely exported to China, 
to some extent, once again, that will struggle to get going because they are dependent on other industries by and large for the sale of their products. And equally, the chemical industry who supply raw materials for a lot of the production processes are also going to find that demand is down, but that equally because many of their imports of essentials for other manufacturers are dollar-based, the instability in our currency, which inevitably follows from the downgrade, is going to make life also difficult. So I think, generally speaking, it's not a happy picture for anyone, although I would say that people have still got to eat Presumably, they still need electricity, which they don't always get. So that's an open question anyway. And we are going to need the transport and distribution network to work. So those are the critical ones in terms of where jobs will probably be the safest. But I think one of the things that follows from this is that employers will learn that they can run their businesses on a much leaner labor force. And employers are notoriously loath to rehire if they can avoid it. And because they are running, in some cases, on greatly reduced numbers of people and getting by is going to dampen down demand for labor. So all in all, given our labor market absorption rate, which is particularly low, we can only place well, probably about 40% of the people who enter the labor market looking for jobs and given that they're going to be a lot more people displaced who will be job seekers means the labor market is going to be a very difficult place. It also means that the difficulty for first time labor market entrance and we know that their uptake in terms of finding jobs in the labor market is the highest, particularly amongst black males from 18 to 25, they're going to find that they're competing for jobs against people who have got experience, people who were employed, people who have got skills and a track record, and that's going to make it even more difficult for them. So it's going to be a buyer's market if you want to hire labor. That's interesting. Somebody said the other day, one of the unintended consequences of us all working from home, particularly as far as knowledge workers are concerned, is that companies are going to realize that they can actually quite easily also outsource some jobs to people across the world where physical presence is no longer a requirement. I suppose that would further play into the dynamics that you've mentioned. It certainly will. And COVID more than anything else is going to fuel or accelerate the rate of outsourcing, of working from home, of getting labor inputs from anywhere around the globe. And the old model of the worker who comes to work from nine to five and sits at his desk and does whatever he does is also going to disappear because employers are going to realize that they don't need to see their employees every single day. And when they need to meet with them, they can do it via electronic media which is usually much quicker and much more effective. And this means that work can be done from almost anywhere for knowledge workers and people like that. Now, what this, of course, is going to mean is we're going to have to find ways to ensure that we can monitor both output and performance in terms of the quality standard and also the numbers, the productivity of workers who are no longer 
under your immediate supervision. And I've no doubt that in point of fact, we are going to find electronic means of monitoring, which are much more invasive, much more effective than the boss occasionally casting his eyeball over acres of workers. But what it does suggest to me too, is that we're going to have to rethink on an evolutionary basis, the way in which we not only assess performance, but the way in which we reward performance. So I think we're probably going to become far more output-based in terms of determining wages. Could be deemed a good thing if you're an employer. Could be quite scary, but also positive if you're an effective worker. What it might mean is that the times of unproductive work demanding higher and higher wages are nearing an end. Yes, I think the old model of the way in which we pay is going to change. It's not always very effective, particularly when you look at salaried staff. And I think that's almost a sine qua non in terms of the new patterns of working. I mean, there are going to be obvious issues which will be raised in terms of personal freedoms and privacy and electronic surveillance, which is going to be quite oppressive, I think, in many respects. But employers will certainly find it easier to get what they pay for. They will also find, of course, that they don't need such large premises any longer. Uh, They don't need to pay rent so much. But we're looking a little bit down the track here. But nevertheless, what the worldwide experience of this plague will do is accelerate this trend, which was, you know, beginning anyway. It's now going to move at a faster pace. And I guess together with that greater mechanization where it's more efficient for the company, which we're already seeing happening in the mines where geology allows for that in South Africa to quite a big degree, right? Inevitably. And, you know, if you take platinum as an example and you look at the numbers of jobs lost in platinum as a result of the big platinum strikes in 2012, we've lost several hundred thousand jobs simply because of mechanization. Now, there are many other reasons other than labor unrest and trade unions instability as to why people have to choose the employer who's investing in new plant and equipment or technology or methodology has to choose the uh, most effective and the youngest vintage of capital because he's got to compete on a world market. And that means he needs the most efficient material, which inevitably demands less labor, but more highly skilled labor. So the future world of work means fewer people employed, but earning higher wages. And of course, if you put this into the South African context, uh, of course, this is antithetical completely to what we need. We need people with picks and shovels. We need labor-intensive jobs, but no business can afford to make the decision that that's the route we're going to go and remain competitive, particularly in a world market. As you say, a lot of these issues are looking forward to you know even a near-term future, but right now, a lot of employers are more urgently wondering about how they're going to pay their employees this month and how they're going to pay their suppliers. And obviously, that's been the immediate challenge for both governments and the finance sector. In South Africa, we've seen some fairly bold moves by government, things like the mobilization of the UIF and by the South African Reserve Bank, 
engaging in buying up of bonds to introduce liquidity into the market, and then even a loosening of lending restrictions on private banks. These are interventions that would have been seen as quite radical just a couple of months ago. Are they having the desired impact in terms of allowing people to keep their workers employed? Are they, in fact, radical enough? It's a little bit too soon to say whether they're working or not, simply because almost all of them involve quite a lot of administrative form filling and uh, applications and so on and so forth. And if we take perhaps the most important one, which is the use of UIF funds to give temporary relief to employers and employees, it's an excellent idea. It makes total sense. I know of numerous employers who are in the process or have already lodged their applications, but whether in fact the monies are being paid and the admin machine is able to cope with it, I don't yet know. Insofar as the private banks are concerned, again, I think there will be a quicker uptake on that simply because private sector does move faster and I think there will unquestionably be use made of that and I think equally it will give some relief, no doubt about that. Are they radical enough? Well, certainly, as you say, Tim, looking back a week ago, 10 days ago, one would have thought that these are you know, absolutely out of the question. But at the end of the day, uh, could we be more radical? Probably not, for the simple reason that we are not a wealthy country. We have a horrendous debt-to-GDP ratio. Obviously, one of the first things that is going to suffer because of the downturn is revenue collections, and so that is going to increase. Government will not have easy access to uh, funding because of the downgrade in order to try and stimulate economic growth to create jobs. And equally, I'm not sure how long the UIF fund can meet these sorts of obligations. And of course, it raises the question, if the funds are exhausted now, what about the person who's contributed to the UIF fund for 20 years of his working life who is retrenched in six months' time as an indirect result or a direct result of this but now finds there's nothing in the fund for him because it's been used? But, you know, given that it is an emergency situation, I think they are good moves, I think they are sensible moves, and I can't easily think of additional things that we could do in the uh, immediate short term which could give relief. There was an open letter, I think it was a week or so ago, by a consortium of academics and economists writing to the president and suggesting, among other things, that unemployment benefits should be extended to casual and informal economy workers. Are these feasible proposals or pie in the sky? I think it's pie in the sky, frankly. The first thing is that, by definition, the informal sector are people who are engaged in activities which are not in any way regulated or registered. So there's no basis to say, yes, you are a genuine participant in the informal sector or not. So how do you sift out the genuine claimants from the non-genuine? The second thing is that in any event, if you look at the various subsidies that government pays, to citizens, whether it's by way of state grants or whatever, we do, in point of fact, have almost a wage subsidy in place anyway. And I don't think that given the numbers of potential applicants and the 
funding available in the UIF fund that it would make any difference at all, even if it could be administered properly to begin with. And I can see huge, huge difficulties insofar as that is concerned. If they want to put money in the hands of, call it the people who may or may not be involved in the informal sector, then they probably would find a more direct and better way to do it via the social grants because people are registered and there is some degree of control and auditing. So, Andrew, the picture that you're painting is a fairly bleak one, and that's not surprising given the situation that we're in. And looking to the longer term, we haven't even begun to feel a lot of the pain that we're going to feel. But at the same time, we have seen some activities internationally and locally, which maybe do give one cause for hope. For example, we've seen companies in the hospitality industry, uh, or even in fact in Investec's case, something that we're looking at is repurposing commercial building space as quarantine facilities or testing facilities. And we've seen examples of factories retooling to produce masks and hand sanitizers. Is this something that you've come across? And a second part to the question would be, with necessity being the mother of invention, do you see these dire circumstances perhaps leading companies to rethink their long-term working models to be more responsive to the times that we live in? You know, I think the first thing that I would say is to echo Lord Keynes, if one may, for a moment, is to say, well, you know, don't worry about the long term, because in the long term, we are all dead. But that, of course, doesn't resolve the problem for those who, uh, my long term may be their extreme short term. I think one thing is clear to me, and that is that the world will not be the same after this. It will be much more inward looking. It will be much more introspective. The whole area of international trade will suffer. And one of the things that will emerge is that they will be looking more and more to their own manufacturing capabilities in order to be less dependent ultimately on foreign supplies, importing supplies. Now, what that does mean is certainly in line with the point you make about companies in terms of looking at their business model uh, will try and build in maximum flexibility, uh, not only of labor, which is the major area of flexibility we've seen when it comes to the factors of production, but in terms of their capital, so that they can switch more quickly from one line to another. Now, I myself have not yet come across any factories which have stopped producing shock absorbers for, for motor cars and are now making surgical masks, but I'm sure they are there. Equally, I think clearly there will be a major rethink in terms of some of the large spaces which may well become redundant. Then one can simply think of the impact of online shopping, for example, on retail and retail malls. Well, this will simply speed all those things up. But to get back to you know the question, will there be headwinds? Yes, there will. This already comes on top of uh, a situation where the world has not yet totally recovered from the banking meltdown. But you know, in the longer term, I have very little doubt the economy will prevail, that the inventive spirit of the entrepreneur will prevail, and that we will go on, albeit in a world which is slightly different to this one, and one which is not completely easy to envisage at this stage, but in point of fact, something will emerge. And that thing that emerges, and this is a tough one, you've described a world where 
the dynamics of the economy are less able than they are even today to absorb large numbers of workers. How do we change that? What can we be doing now to ensure that we're not destined for a future where formal unemployment, instead of sitting at 20 or 30%, is sitting at 40 or 50%? In terms of South Africa, the answer is absolutely simple. It's the achievement which is the difficult part. The thing which will resolve all our problems is economic growth between 5 and 8% for a decade or a decade and a half. That will do it. We're looking at simple, old-fashioned Keynesian demand deficiency unemployment. There are far more labor jobs supplied than there is demand for. How do we rectify that? Well, we do it by economic growth. So that's the answer in theory. But in point of fact, delivering that growth is going to be the political challenge as well as the economic challenge. And there we are sadly starting from a long way behind. We've got to overcome the negative ratings, and that could take a long time. We've got to get to a situation where we are increasing domestic and international demand for our products. That will equally take time. And so there is no quick fix whatsoever. The positive thing at this stage that one can say is that if you look at our economic infrastructure in its broadest sense, it is still a good one. We have a banking, financial, capital markets sector, which is amongst the finest in the world. Whilst our justice system is certainly creaking badly, our legal system when it comes to commercial law does operate. It's a reasonably predictable environment in which to do business from a legal point of view. We have a lot of talented people. South African managers, entrepreneurs do well overseas because they are so competent and they're used to dealing with difficult situations under pressure. Our transport infrastructure may well be creaking a bit and there may be the odd pothole but by and large, we still have road and rail links, which are probably the finest in Africa. So everything is there, which will enable us to uh, begin a growth path. What we need is the political will and the political and national unity in order to do that. It has been done before. Uh, you know, if one looks at the way certain countries recovered after World War II. I mean, interesting examples obviously are Germany, Japan, Holland had some very interesting collective activities to rebuild the economy. These things can happen, but at the moment, we just appear to be a little too fragmented politically for this to be an immediate solution. I guess it comes right back full circle to where we started. You know, whether this crisis could potentially provide that political space because it's so dire and because the ramifications are so great and so urgent that it perhaps provides the political space to find a way forward. We saw Tito Mboweni saying the other day that President Ramaphosa had said to him that the Moody's downgrade was the signal that we needed to embark on a process of structural reform. And one could argue that COVID-19 is all the more so. What I would say, of course, is I'm not a political analyst, so uh, whatever I might say here is nothing more than a personal opinion. I wouldn't claim that it has any weight. But certainly in my own 
estimation, I think the state president has shown himself to be worthy and competent of our national trust. I think he's shown strengths which we haven't seen before. And if he can carry those through and deal with the dissenters within uh, his own party, and perhaps to some extent marginalize or allow their own rhetoric and policies marginalize the uh, extreme left wing like the EFF, then yes, this is certainly uh, not an impossibility. I think the moment of confrontation has not yet come, but it's not far away. And I think that the ANC and certainly the cadres who are not in support of Ramaphosa are able to rely on the unions, generally speaking, to support their positions. But I think that, you know, as this thing plays out, both theirs and the union's positions will weaken. And the union's positions have continually weakened over the last 24 months or so. And, you know, one mustn't be taken in by their rhetoric. They always talk up their game and the press and the public tend to believe them. But they're not that strong. And, you know, until such time as we have, call it our Thatcher moment, where there's a showdown with the unions, we won't get on. And I can see that coming quite soon. But, you know, I don't know the inner workings of the ANC and what goes on behind closed doors. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a fascinating discussion. I really, really appreciate your time. Before we leave it, is there anything on this topic that you'd like to get off your chest or questions? No, but I, I'd just like to, while, you know, while I'm here, say hello to my mother who's 101 and been through world wars and things like that and you know she's still going strong like Johnny Walker so no there's nothing else I really have to say other than that human spirit is a strange thing well I guess one of the positives to come out of this very tough situation is that many of us are taking more time out to call our mums and others that matter most to us keeping those human bonds strong even if at a distance Thanks for listening to this Investec Focus Radio podcast. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to rate us. I'm Tim Spira, Head of Digital Content at Investec, and I want to tell you about our next Focus Radio podcast with Kevin Hogan, Head of Fraud Risk at Investec's private bank. Turns out that with people spending more of their time online during the COVID-19 lockdown, fraudsters are taking full advantage, finding new ways to inveigle their way into our private data and to extract funds from our bank accounts. Kevin talks about this alarming trend and shares practical advice on how to stay safe. So to make sure you catch this and future episodes, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcasts.